Welcome to St. Florian's, the podcast that tells the stories of those who serve the common good. I'm your host, Father Matthew Young. St. Florian is the patron saint of firefighters, chimney sweeps, and soap makers. And I don't know any chimney sweeps or soap makers. So we're going to talk with firefighters and other public servants and hear their stories. Talk a little faith and have some real open and honest conversations you know about life. Today we sit down with Audrey Zarzak, originally from Philadelphia. Audrey now resides in Covington, Kentucky. And vocationally, she is a firefighter and recently promoted lieutenant paramedic with the Newport Fire EMS Department in Newport, Kentucky. She's a United States Marine Corps veteran, holds a national position in the International Association of Firefighters, and locally, she is the chairperson of the Newport Firefighters Local 45 Community Outreach. More importantly, she is an incredible mother to her high school-age daughter and an all-around good person. So, Audrey, without further ado, I'm going to push the magic button, and that's the wrong one, <laughs> and welcome you to St. Florian's. Hello, everybody. <laughs> welcome, Audrey. It's good to see you, and it's good to visit with you. So, the National Fire Protection Association, the NFPA, currently estimates that in the United States, there are 1,115,000 career and volunteer firefighters. Now, one-third of them, that's 370,000, are uh, career firefighters, and two-thirds of them are volunteer. And of the whole total, about 93,700, or just 8%, are women. And of the career firefighter category, it's just 5% that are women. Your gender is in a very small minority in this vocation. So tell me honestly what it's like to be a woman in the fire service. It's hard. Um, It's definitely never, never easy. That's for sure. Um, I always tell the guys is this is how I kind of get them to understand what it's like to be a female in the fire service is that I always say that I have to be above average to be considered even average. Okay. So above average to be average, isn't there, and that sort of leads into what I wanted to ask you, isn't there sort of a a double standard for women, not only in the fire service, but I see it also in all sorts of uh, vocations. I see it uh, for women who serve in the clergy. If you show solid, capable, strong direction, then you get labeled as authoritarian or or worse, people call you a bitch or something, right? And Correct. but if you are passive or quiet, then you're dismissed as being too soft. Doesn't doesn't that sort of get old? Oh, it definitely gets old. Um I'm to the point in my life that I I'm I'm done tolerating. I'm done tolerating things that I have for many years. Obviously, we'll get to the Marine Corps part, but obviously I have chosen a more male-dominant career paths. And there are definitely women that can do this job. Um, there, and, and there's women that can't do the job, but there's also men that can't do the job. But, a lot of men that can't do the job. Right, right. Um, but we, we are definitely more scrutinized. Um, everybody always looks at us harder, and they're always watching what we do. We have to 
almost be flawless. So we make a mistake and it's like the shot heard around the world. Does that make you feel like you're work, working on eggshells? Um, Maybe it did before, but not so much now? Yeah, especially when you first start, um, you're on eggshells, that's for sure. And I think that's with any new person um, in a new job. Um, you feel like they're more focused on you. Um some people are willing to help you and some people are willing not to help you. Um, so have you ever just faced outright discrimination? Oh, absolutely. A- absolutely. Yeah, I guess that was a softball of a question. Though, right? <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that. I mean, when I first got hired with Newport, um, I had a few of the retire guys in my first retirement party. I think I was at the maybe like two months on at Newport and they came up and they're like, they're going to run you out of here. Nobody wants you here. I said, okay. Yeah. Well, you knew deep down that wasn't going to happen. (laughs) I said, good luck. I'm a single mom and I have a kid to raise. Like I need a job and like, this is where I want to be. I knew that it was going to take time. It was going to take time to get them to see me at, for me, not for my gender. Um, and I knew I was going to have to prove myself, which was fine. Like I, I knew what I was getting myself into. Um, so I don't, I don't ever hold that against them. I know that obviously things are changing now. Um, back in the day, like it was, you know, this is, this is for men. This is a man's job, you know, and women don't belong, (laughs) which, which is not the case. And, um, I came a long way with the current guys and the retired guys, the retired guys all call me now. Like I've earned their respect. Um, I've always shown respect as well, but like, I know that in this field, I, I like, I have, I've had to work a little harder to earn, earn my respect with them and they all love me. Sure. Because I would think for any new hire, it takes time to earn the respect of your coworkers, regardless of your gender. But I would suspect that for women in the fire service, that it takes longer to earn that respect, perhaps from some people. Yes, yes, I would agree with that. Um, especially, I would say I would agree more with the older genera- generation, where more of um, millennials and um the newer generations um they have grown up in these changing times um so they tend to be a little more accepting um than the older generations and and i get it i understand it you know and and i take my time with it you know and and i just keep pushing and and working through it and letting them get to know me and and see me for who I am and and not everybody likes me which is understandable like it it is what it is and it, it everybody is like that you know I may not be somebody's cup of tea just like somebody's probably not my cup of tea <laughs> right so we're talking today with Audrey Zarzak who is a lieutenant paramedic with the Newport Kentucky soon, soon, to, soon act, to be acting. oh she's acting I as I one right I now I haven't but. been promoting yet so she <laughs> is promotable but so when it when is december your promotion 13th. december 13th so if we hold off and publish this episode by december 13th then you would be 
the Correct. the lieutenant. As long as the commission says yes, <laughs> I will be. We'll hope that they do, and I'm sure that they Fingers will. Crossed. So she has, uh, she is as we would call back in in the military, promotable. So she is, she is uh, scheduled to be promoted on December 13th. So we've talked so so far about that role within the fire service. What about in the public? Do you ever get to like a call and someone say, you know, I want to, I want a guy instead or something? Is that? Um, no, not, not, um, ever really that they want a guy. It, usually they're more taken back that a woman is on scene and helping. Um, really the biggest thing that I get is when we're carrying people out, they don't think I can carry them. And they're like, you, you can't carry me. You know, when I, especially like, men you know even an average male that's like 220 is like the average you know probably like six foot six one and they're like you you can't carry me i'm like uh, let's just try it out like i haven't dropped anybody today that's right <laughs> that's right but the day is still young right Correct. so we're gonna see what happens so the city of newport's fire and ems department is contracted for 36 firefighters of various ranks and currently you are the only woman serving on the department that's less than three percent were you the first woman to be hired for the city of newport in the fire department no they had a woman uh back in the 70s and from my understanding um she was only there for a few months okay so kind of ran her off so that's my understanding i don't really know the whole story but i don't i don't think that she made it past a few months so that makes you the second second but the first to get out of probation Correct. The first one to be uh, made an engineer, Correct. medic. The first one to be selected to be sworn in as lieutenant. Correct. Right? And maybe the first one to be the fire chief? Uh, no, no way. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you've gone against the grain a little bit. So especially in the greater Cincinnati, northern Kentucky area, you are of Puerto Rican descent. Correct a woman and in the fire service who who taught you to go against the grain of things who taught you to just simply be you or wh- where did you learn that um i'd have to say growing up in philadelphia <laughs> um so i hear at, you make a pretty good philly cheesesteak is that right it, I like to just call them cheesesteaks because I'm oh, from Philly. Oh, because you're from Philly. So it's a tourist thing to say Philly <laughs> cheesesteak, right? Okay. <laughs> That's so, how you know you're not from Philly. <laughs> so you learned that in Philadelphia. Say more. Um, so um, if you want to do a little Googling, um, Google Kensington, the neighborhood in Philadelphia. It's um, pretty sure it's still the most poverty-stricken neighborhood in Philadelphia. Um, it's... I grew up with excellent parents, but we were pretty poor. Um, my mom, because of having to take care of us, she kind of worked part-time in and out um, of different jobs because she, um, she graduated from high school but didn't really follow up with college or didn't have any, like, she she did bake. Um, that is, like, her specialty. Um, she worked at a bakery for a little, and then she kind of did some stuff out of the house. Um, my dad... I didn't see a lot of him because he worked second shift. So really weekends were the only time I got to see him. But they um they were they're just very good people. So even though we had nothing, um and we grew up pretty poor, um, they had good morals and ethics and raised 
me and my brother, right? And even though we had nothing, my mom would still always get back. So there are a lot of drugs, a lot of hookers on the corners, um, especially where we were located in this neighborhood. Um, a lot of homeless and even more poor people. Like, obviously, everybody around us was poor, but she would still save all our old clothes and she so everything's concrete in the city and our backyard was maybe 12 by 12 and she actually had my dad uh built built she loves planting plants build a like little planter and planted a nectarine tree in a nectarine back, tree nectarine in philadelphia tree in philadelphia in our backyard and like everybody's yards they're like 12 by 12 and there's always an alleyway and she would pick all of these nectarines off and sit them out front and let people just come get them and just pick them. Like she would set them all these baskets and like even like homeless, they pick up on it and you would catch them in the alleys, like pulling the nectarines off because they wanted something to eat. And my mom would fill up. Now, again, we, we barely have anything for us and people would be walking by and, you know, and they'd ask for money. My mom, like, give me your baby bottle. I'll go fill it up with milk, you know, and she would fill them up, fill it up with milk. She'd be like, are you hungry? I'll make you a bowl of soup. She'd give him a bowl of soup, you know, like, so just seeing my mom do that is kind of probably where I got all my stuff, you know, and, and they gave us a ton of just love, you know, and the one thing my mom, like, they really couldn't give us things, um, but she always made sure we had full bellies. So she always... Hence why I like to eat a lot. So if you know me, that is why. <laughs> so my mom always made sure that um, we always had full bellies. Like them kids you see where you, you bundle up um, and go to bed at night with coats and tons of blankets because we didn't have heat. Um, that's what you would, that was us, me and my brother. We actually, it was a two-bedroom house. Me and my brother shared the same bed. Um <clears throat> And we would bundle up to go to bed. One of the first things I did, uh, we didn't have they didn't we didn't have heat in the house. My parents heated the house with kerosene heaters. <laughs> says <laughs> says the firefighter. Yeah, right. <laughs> Kept us warm, but uh, my dad was safe about it. it yeah, so if you're listening to down. this, don't do that. Yes, do not do that. <laughs> um, but one of the first things I did um, when I got out of boot camp and got my first few paychecks, which are very tiny, if you. You recall being in the Navy. Um, I think we got... I was an officer, though. Oh, uh, I, I was uh, I was a little uh, PFC when I got, got done out of boot camp. So um, I saved my money because I was living in the barracks. I really didn't have any bills or anything, and I didn't drive. I didn't have a license. Um, you don't need a license when you live in Philly. Uh, I saved my money, and I sent it. My dad is a jack-of-all-trades. So I saved my first few paychecks and I sent it home so my dad could finally get a heater and put heat in the house. And that's exactly what he did. So that was one of my first few things that I did when I got out of boot camp to make sure that they finally had heat in their house. Jesus says that by their fruits, you will know them. And so in this case, it was nectarines. Nectarines. Yeah. My mom, my mom was, she's amazing, is amazing. Um, my dad passed away 10 years ago um, from a massive heart attack, but he was an incredible man as well. So, 
What was the worst part about growing up in poverty? I don't know. Like, honestly, like, I love my childhood. I wouldn't change it um, because it made me who I am. It makes me appreciate everything that I have. Um, it makes me want to work hard for everything that I have. Um, I had amazing friends. We were all poor. <laughs> like, we, um, we used to walk to school every day together. And, you were poor and you knew it. Yeah, like, I don't, I don't. I don't know what I could say the worst part was. Um, so perhaps some of the things that might be considered the worst part turn out to be the best part form- formidably that in, in making a foundation. Did you have much religious background in Philadelphia? Um, so I grew up Catholic. Um, I actually went to Catholic school most of my life. Um, a lot of Philly is Catholic, so there's Catholic schools everywhere, like um within walking distance, all the grade schools, and then the high schools, you had to take a bus and a train to. Um, I went to Catholic high school, all-girl, for two years, and I absolutely hated going to an all-girl school, so I told my mom that. No more. No more, and so she sent me to public school. (laughs) I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore, but um, yeah, my my mom, my grandma is uh, in the church like almost every day, (laughs) so she is very religious. Well, um, we we priests love people like that. <laughs> we love them all, but we really love people like that. My grandma is extremely um, religious. My mom and my dad were, you know, just your average normal Catholic people. Um, my dad obviously didn't go to church, go to church uh, as much as my mom did because he was always working and stuff. But but we did used to we used to go to church every Sunday. I actually, was in the choir. <laughs> Heck yeah. Does it bother you when you see children in the city now or anywhere for that matter, but in the city now when you're working, living in poverty? Uh, I would say that, um, well, of course, like, you know, it just hurts my heart. Um, but I know that they, with the right impact and, and the right people, they can get out of that um, they can learn to get out of that. I know it's harder. I, again, I was fortunate because I had amazing parents, um, where I know I see some of these kids don't even have that, but, um, I love trying to be a part and trying to be a part of the change in that I know that even if it's one or two kids that we can impact, that it, it may change their career path. It may change their life path, you know, and um, they want to do better. They want to be better. They want to get, they don't want to be in that situation anymore. And these kids can't help it. You know, they're, they're born into it. Right. You're, you're, you are a product of an environment in both positive and not so positive ways. Correct. So you grow up in Philadelphia in the Kensington neighborhood. And then shortly after graduating high school you enlist in the united states marine corps did you just get up one morning and say i want to be in the marine corps nope i knew since freshman year i told my parents that i was going to join the military um i wasn't sure of what branch yet i kind of knew i knew that i definitely didn't want to be in the air force which my dad was mad about because he was in the air force and my my grandpa was in the army air air corps um and on the air force side 
So I knew I didn't want to do that. And I knew I didn't want to do the army. So it was between the Navy and the Marine Corps. Um, <clears throat> so I kind of went back and forth and I kind of le- let it be. Cause my mom's like, you're not going to the military. So, um, I actually went from going from Catholic to public school. Um, I actually skipped a grade. So I graduated early. I graduated a year early. So I only did three years of high school and I graduated at valedictorian. FYI. How about that? <laughs> um, I did go to summer school one year because I missed so much school. <laughs> they sent me to summer school for my lowest grade. Really? And I had straight A's. <laughs> so my lowest grade was English at like a 92 or like a 93. So you get an A minus in English and you go to summer school? Yeah, because I missed so many days of school. <laughs> that seems pretty crazy. <laughs> but anyway. Okay, um, so, so you're going to... You enlist in the Marine Corps then how how long after high school? Pretty quickly? I, oh, I, I tried to sign up when I was 16 and they told me to go home because I was too young. Yeah, you're too young at that point. You can barely so, drive a car. So um, I didn't get my license until I was almost 21. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I lost my train of thought. So I tried to sign up when I was 16. It was like two weeks before my 17th birthday. And I went. When I turned 17, my birthday's in March, and uh, I signed up. I was like, I'm 17. I'm like, the recruiter's like, shouldn't you still be in school? It's like 1.30. I'm like, no. Like, I have actually I have so many credits. Like, I get out of school early. You said, I went to summer school. I got out early. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I was like, actually, I get out of school early because I have so many credits that, like, I don't need to be in school all day. So, they just let me get out early. So, and he's like, there's got to be something wrong with you. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm like, he's like, he's like, nobody just walks in and says, sign me up. Like, I want to, you know, like go now, like, you know, and he's like, you got to do drugs. I'm like, I don't do drugs. I'll pee for in a cup right now for you. And he's like, okay, I believe you. He's like, you're offering up to pee in the cup. You don't do drugs. He's like, um, He's like, are you failing school? I was like, actually, I'm on track to be valedictorian. He goes, oh, my God. He's like, <laughs> he's like, there's got to be, he's like medical. There's got to be something wrong, right? Yeah, he's like medical. I was like, nothing. Like, I'm good. There's nothing wrong with me. He's like, oh, my God. He's like, there, there's got to be. I was like, there's one thing. And he's like, I knew it. I was like, I'm 17. I got to get my parents to sign for me. He's like, that's it? I'm like, yeah, that's it. And he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> he's like, I cannot believe this. So... I get my dad to come in with me and he signs and my mom is refusing to sign. Oh no. So she's, cause she doesn't want me to go. And, um, cause I'm going to, I plan on leaving. Um, I told him I had to work all summer because, um, I like, I helped the family out. I was like, so I don't, I want to wait till I want to have my final summer at, you know, home with my friends. And so like, I was like, I want to leave in like August or something like that. So they set a date up for me. And he's like, we're going to need your mom to sign. And I'm like, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. What, what so, made her come around? Um, I had to threaten her. <laughs> um, so I basically told her that if she didn't sign, <laughs> I know this is horrible of me. I swear I'm a good person. Sounds like a confession, friend. <laughs> Here it comes. I told her that if she didn't sign now, that I want to, you know, this is what I want to do. Um. That when I turned 18, I was going to join, and then she would never see me again. <laughs> I know, I'm horrible. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> We're talking today with Audrea Zarzak about after she threatened her mother that she'd never see her again, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I love my mom. Things, you, ne- things you never knew, right? So, so while you're in the Marine Corps, then our country uh, winds up at war, and you and you 
are deployed to Iraq. What was your job in the Marine Corps? What's your training so, and specialty? Um, every Marine is a rifleman first. Um, and then our job is our secondary. Okay. Um, we all know. Come on. Don't roll your eyes over there. <laughs> it's true. We're it is, it is very true. You know, my first stop in the military was uh, as chaplain at uh, MCRD San Diego, Marine Corps Boot Camp San Diego. The Hollywood with Marines. Holly Mar- Hollywood Marines, right? <laughs> and you'd have a line out your door every morning of 31 <laughs> recruits that wanted to speak to the, the chaplain. And they got about two minutes each. And I was much, much younger and... Not not nearly as wise, so there's no telling what I probably said to them. But they were just going to get a two-minute break. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. It was the only place in church that I really didn't feel bad that people were sleeping and that were recruits. It was also the only place on the entire base that drill instructors took off their campaign hats is when they went inside church. Any other building, they never, ever took it off, but they did inside church, which was interesting. So interesting church story on Sundays, I'm sure you know. They used to a lot. I can't remember what the window was like, either like two or four hours that you had. But so I went to every mass possible. So I wasn't stuck because they would catch you back in the bay. Like, because that was your your time, which was BS. If you're back in the right. in the barracks. That There's no such thing time. as your time, right? So I literally went to every, like I went to Buddhist. I went to, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I went, to, I went to Catholic church. I went to... The Baptist. You got saved a few times. I went to every mass possible to to take up that four hour window on Sunday. <laughs> that is so awesome. I love it. So. It's a it's making wise use of your time. <laughs> I remember in Marine Corps boot camp when you would say the opening prayer and you'd say the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And they would all shout at the top of their l- lungs, and also with you, sir. <laughs> I don't think that's exactly how it was supposed to be done, but but that's how they did it. So so Iraq is six thousand eight hundred and six miles away from Philadelphia. That is a long way. What do you remember most about that place? Um, so my my job in the Marine Corps, I was a telephone computer tech. My dad picked it. I didn't know what to pick. Right? They wanted me to be a mechanic. I was like, I'm not mechanic so my dad was like electronics will be cool i'm like okay <laughs> like so so um he he picked this job and i'm like okay whatever so i did that as my like um kind of regular job sure like my nine to five job um not really nine to five they do have different hours but anyway um in iraq i did um base security and um route clearance so i worked the my platoon worked as a platoon sergeant my platoon worked it was two weeks at the entry control points and we had 18 towers around our base so we were um right outside about 11 miles from fallujah in uh and it was 26 square miles so we had 18 guard towers and two entry control points. and um, So about half the size of Boone County, Kentucky then. That, yeah, it was, yeah, it was huge. It was so, it housed, it housed um, mostly Army um, and then Marines, some Navy um, were on base. The Air Force definitely weren't catching them there. Um, <laughs> they were like up in a hotel somewhere, I think. I'm not sure. Right. <laughs> Uh, I did 
called my dad and told him I messed up and I should have went there before. Right, you had better accommodations, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> Are there images from Iraq that you'll never forget? Um, like... What do you remember of the place? Was just the... Everything was really run down and obviously their living is very... Um, Especially at that time. Very poor. So the school... Um, I sent my mom home a letter and had her like put together like people that like, got all our family and friends to send like books and pencils and all kinds of stuff. So the school is actually just a little one room. Um, I don't know what you call them, like bungalow, like type, just one room structure. I'm not kidding you. And it was kindergarten to high school all in there all these kids in one room one chalkboard one teacher and they would just share so my mom sent me this massive boxes of like pens and pencils and like all, all kinds of school supply stuff to deliver out there um and I had my platoon uh they also sent letters home to their family having them send so we wound up getting a ton of stuff to take out there to the teacher in the school so at least they had some kind of supplies um so that was kind of um sad to see the little kids we used to um our families used to send us candy so we used to pass out candy to all the kids and if we didn't have candy and we ran out they'd flip us off <laughs> it was actually it was i thought it was comical absolutely so audrey that leads me into part of the next conversation that I'd like to have with you, and that's about generosity. So I see uh, a certain aspect of generosity in your, in your formation and, and childhood from your, from your folks, but especially from your mother. It, it continues on where you have one job to do or several jobs to do in the Marine Corps in Iraq, but it wind up, as I see it, spiritually speaking, the hand of God is active and having you uh, involved in the well-being and the educational process of young people there in adverse conditions. And so one of the things I want to talk with you about is generosity. You might very well be one of the most, uh, well, you are one of the most generous people that I've ever met. And I think about a certain passage in 2 Corinthians where the writer says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And even Jesus himself talks often about generosity, and he says, Give to everyone who asks of you, and anyone, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Now, those are sort of hard words to live by, especially the latter part. And certainly as Christians, we see that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, one that constantly gives and gives and gives of himself for the sake of the whole world. And it's little wonder then that John's gospel reports Jesus saying that greater love, you hear this in the fire service quite often, the greater love has no one than this, that they would lay down their life for their friends. What, what's your motivation? What makes you so generous? Who taught you that? Why does it matter? Um, excuse me. <laughs> Um, I would say it has to be from my, my parents, you know, um, just having little and still willing to give what you have. Um, and it may leave you with 
almost nothing, which is kind of like what we already had. Um, so I feel like that she set the foundation. Um, and obviously now we are um, doing better, you know, like I wouldn't by any means say that I'm like wealthy or, you know, uh, I had my struggles after I got out of the military and I was raising at the time she was just turned three and uh as a single parent moving here from North Carolina um we were gonna I was originally gonna go back to Philly with my mom and then my brother was in Kentucky and she's like hey let's all be together again go to Kentucky I'm like okay well you know I have nothing I have literally nothing um when I got back from Iraq I had nowhere to stay. My ex, like, took everything, sold everything. We're in a good relationship now. Like, we have a very, we've gotten past all that. There's no point of, you know, stewing on all that or, you know, like, just, it's in the past. Let it be. Like, we got a kid to raise. But at the time, it was bad, you know. Like, he, like, took everything from me, and I had nothing. Literally, when I, I didn't even have a place to stay when I got back from Iraq. My mom called one of my friends that um, we were close with when I, uh, that he actually got out of the Marine Corps and was still living in North Carolina. And she called him and we, when I got back, my mom met me um, in North Carolina and uh, we went and stayed at my friend Adam's house. Cause I didn't have anywhere to stay. I didn't have anything. Um, so I had to find a place to live. I had nothing. We, uh, me and my mom, my daughter would have picnics uh, we called them because we didn't have anywhere to sit to, to eat our, our dinner. And you want to talk about being able to, like, take a piece of chicken and some ramen noodles and make, like, heaven out of it? That's my mom. <laughs> like, she's an amazing cook. But uh, so we would have picnics um, for dinner and lunch in on the kitchen floor. We'd put, like, a towel down or a, <clears throat> a blanket down, and we would have picnics and my daughter don't know any better. She thinks it's great. We're having right. Picnics having a picnic. inside. <laughs> you know, like uh, I had one, We I went and bought one pot, one pan, three plates, and, you know, at the Dollar Tree. And, you know, and we got by my dad. Which is now a dollar and a quarter. Did you see that? They I raise know. A, I mean, how, it just seems so sinful. I know, but. So, so you, you have know. a pot, so you have a pot, a pan, and a plate. Yeah. And your dad. So my dad got all of my friends. Now, note, we all grew up. Um, pretty poverty stricken. Like I didn't have any rich friends or, you know, friends that were well off. We were all poor. My dad got together with all my friends and family and he rented a van and they all donated like small pieces of furniture. So, and we had like a hodgepodge of like a, a table and like a chair, like somebody donated a chair, somebody else donated a chair, somebody donated a, like a small TV and, and uh, he brought all that stuff from Philly, North Carolina. Okay. And so for about, it was probably about four, five months that we, me, Casey, and my mom slept on an air mattress <laughs> um, together until I finally got enough money saved. Um, I was working. I just got out from back from Iraq, and I was getting out of the Marine Corps. Um, and again, like I said, my, my ex kind of took me for everything. Um so, I mean, that kind of stuff, like where 
my my parents who already don't have anything, my friends who don't have anything, and they're just it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are, what it is. They're willing to, you know what? I only need three chairs, so I'm going to give you my fourth chair. Like even that's the only thing you have. They're willing to just give it away to you, you know, and probably to almost anybody that that is in in need for it and is trying to work to build themselves up you know like sometimes you you fall down and sometimes you need a helping hand to pick you up and that is what I try to do for other people because I have been there and I know what it's like um throughout my entire life not even you know childhood you know obviously like I was doing good in the Marine Corps and then I'm go through a divorce and then I have nothing and I got to start all over again. I got to find a career path, what I'm going to do. Uh, Cause I wasn't planning on getting out of the Marine Corps. Uh, I was planning on doing 20 plus years, but that changed with the divorce because they said I could lose custody and I couldn't lose custody of my kid. So I had to make a big decision and then I didn't know what I was going to do. And I'm like, hmm, I could be a firefighter. Let's let's. So out of that. the blue, you decide. I think I'll just go in and fight some fires. No, and um, I needed something that wasn't a a desk job. I needed something that was um, I tried the desk job thing. Um, I needed I needed to help people. Um, I needed something that was challenging and that was ever changing. Like I don't want to do the same thing all the time. So did you realize at the time that? Most of firefighting is actually EMS. It's mostly emergency medical services. I did not know. I didn't really know anything about the fire service. Like when I started, like I didn't. I was just like, they help people. They have a difficult job. Um, I didn't want anything easy. Um, I'm like, that, and, and it's challenging. Like I wanted something that was going to be mentally and physically challenging. And I know that I can handle stressful situations I'm like you know like I had people shooting mortars off at me and setting up IEDs and you know so I'm like hmm, I can do this I can do this so I um I joined Taylor Mill uh, as a volunteer and I was actually told like they asked what my goal was and I was like I want to be a full-time firefighter um within a year and they're laughed in my face that like nobody does it in a year i said okay they were I talking said, to the wrong person i said i i told the chief at the time i said with all due respect chief i said you do not know me i said but okay he does now yes he does <laughs> and i got offered my first full-time job at 51 weeks in the fire service so just under a year <laughs> just tuned my horn so there. let's get so let's get back to this uh <laughs> generosity piece for just a minute Currently, you are the community outreach chairperson, I think is the best way to put it, right? For the... Yeah, um, we call it the events chairperson. Okay, the for, events for the Newport department. Firefighters Local 45. And <clears throat> you've had that position for four years, five years now? Um, Roughly. Pro- yeah, probably five to six now. Okay, five to six years. Well, this will even go even higher than, than the total. So by my estimation and research in that time period, and really I think this is a collective effort of many people, but it's certainly under your leadership and your direction. I've observed you bring people together simply to give and give and give to others. So annual winter coat drives, food drives for schools and the children that go to school, 
uh, food drives for families. Fundraisers such as an annual bowling tournament that we can talk about where that money goes to. You have easily, in my estimation, raised and distributed about $125,000 in money and goods to people in the city of Newport who need it or lack it all around our town. In five to six years of town, over a time, over $125,000. And I can't think of any real private entity that has actually done as much. And honestly, if it wasn't for you, I I don't think it would get done or at least get accomplished in the same way. Something has to motivate you for that. What what good do you see coming from from all that? Um, <clears throat> well, obviously, like I mean, we we have the first off. I need to say that this none of this it I lead the charge, but none of this would be possible if it wasn't for all these wonderful people and businesses and people like you because you always give to us. Um, that's what makes it possible. Their donations um, is what makes it possible. Like the, we posted on Facebook and people were just like, here, here's $50 to go buy a coat. And I'm going to go buy coats today with my daughter <laughs> with the money that we have allotted and with money that people have sent in if they don't have time to purchase a coat um, to, um, to drop off at the firehouses. I'll just go buy it for them. Um, so we, uh, we keep good track of, of all the money that comes in. But, it, again, I just lead the charge, and I go out, and I talk to people, and I send letters and all that stuff, and that, that is what makes all this possible is the gener- generosity of everybody else. But somebody has to, and, and I appreciate your leadership in that and bringing people together to make it happen. Somebody has to organize that, and, and that is exhausting work. People have no idea. <laughs> really how challenging that kind of herding of the cats, if you will, really is, even when it's for a good cause and a good thing. But you bring up a very interesting point that I think is one that needs to be repeated over and over and over again. Our world and our country and our lives are in very challenging situations. The realities of the global pandemic, the realities of of people that are further divided socially and politically perhaps, all sorts of challenges that people face. And what I think you're experiencing is it turns out that the old words of old Anne Frank are really truthful after all, that that all people really are good at heart. And you find so many, many people in our city and in our community that are generous simply because they were asked. And wouldn't you not agree with me that there's far much more generosity than there is negativity, but we only seem to hear the latter part. That is very true. Um, but I know the difference. And I, I think a lot of people have seen um, the difference and, and they see people's generosity and their willingness to give. And so it was, it was a little um, rough when we first started doing when I first started taking over um, and and leading the charge um, just with the firefighters, because um, it is exhausting. Um, and they're like, why are we doing so much? I'm like, because look at 
the impact that it has. That's why. And um, so we just ask that they partake in one thing that they love the most. And it spreads the wealth out for all of the things that we do because we we have added on a lot. So when I started, we just did the bowling tournament and the Beyond the Call. And then we had um, the scholarships. Um yeah, I didn't even mention scholarships. So a couple students a year from Newport Public High School and Newport Central Catholic High School are awarded scholarships from Local 45. Correct. So tell me what you and others from Newport Firefighters Local 45 do at Christmas time for people in the city of Newport. So we have been work. I've been working on this. Uh, all today running around and making sure we got everything ready for Christmas Eve. So Santa um, actually comes to the firehouse on Christmas Eve. and First stop that Santa Claus makes over the entire universe is Newport Newport Fire. Fire. Absolutely. (laughs) He comes and he sees us and he loves us and uh, because he loves all of the good things that we do. And so we are Santa's elves. For a few families here in Newport, um, the schools give us families and children that are in much need, and they we provide them with all of their Christmas needs and wants. We provide Christmas dinner, and we also provide a week's worth of food that the children um, are able to make if the parents are at work. Um, and actually a little touching story that, um, Santa gave me the names and the, the families. And one of the families is actually Spanish speaking and he was concerned and I told him, don't even worry about it. And like, I will figure it out. I'm like, don't ixnay a family because they speak Spanish. I'm like, my mom speaks Spanish. So like, I'll take care of it. Ixnay <laughs> is pig Latin for <laughs> exclude. Yes. So, um, I actually, um, they were so shocked, um, that, uh, they were even chosen by the school and they were so, this is relaying from Santa, um, that they were in all. So the mom is a single mom. She works second shifts and grandmom is Spanish speaking only. And she takes care of the children and they were so shocked and grateful that we would even consider um, assisting their family for Christmas. And they they don't have a lot. Um, and I actually had my mom call yesterday, and we three-wayed to talk to the grandmom because I don't speak Spanish, but my mom does. So she translated, and, and actually one of the older boys got on the phone who speaks very good English. And even then, like, because I was like, hey, like, they didn't really put down a lot of stuff that, that you – you want I'm like she put down just like clothes and stuff like that I'm like like there's he's like no no I, th- I think we're I'm like there's got to be some well I really like football you know and I'm like what about your sister and he's like she loves Barbies <laughs> you know and like right. so like it was just like they were just so already humble and and they didn't like like they are they are being raised by good parents they you know it's interesting I've, I've been a priest since 1998 is that right yeah, 1998. I was 28 years old. And she was in high school stuff. I know, it has something, <laughs> right? I'm kidding. Shoe is right. <laughs> and I've had 
many people, thousands perhaps, call or stop by and ask for some sort of assistance for something. But to this day, I have never once ever had a Spanish-speaking person ask for assistance or help, ever, not once, at all. So we recently just started donating um, to Newport Intermediate. So we send a check every month for their fresh food pantry. Um, And they provide to approximately 40 families that are considered homeless for the kids that go to the school. So they consider they are considered homeless if they do not have their name on like a rental property or home or anything like that. So they consider them homeless. And there's about 40 families, and they said the majority of them are Spanish-speaking. And they come to the Fresh Food Pantry to um, – they found out that, that they – a lot of the things that they eat are from fresh food and that that's kind of how I grew up as well. So like I understand it. And uh, so we are fortunate enough that we have so much to give back from everybody giving to us that we actually make a, a monthly donation to the school for the, the fresh food pantry to make sure that these families have the things that they need. It's refreshing to me. It, well, first of all, it's it's heartbreaking to me to think that there are plus or minus 40 households in our city that are considered uh, homeless in in ways that we perhaps might not expect. Uh, Secondly, it's refreshing to me to think that there's people who are just simply concerned about their well-being and are not engaged in the rest of the world's political argument about who belongs somewhere and who doesn't, who's documented and who's undocumented, or most sinful thing of all, to call someone illegal. but I digress. The I think that uh, I think it's refreshing to see, uh, in my mind, the hand of God at work and and simply helping others. And there's a spiritual principle involved in in that that it is for your well being, your spiritual well being, your DNA of what matters to do these things and to be these things. If we want to, we become the people based. Uh, that we want to be or don't want to be based on what we do or don't do. And I think that this aspect of generosity helps us clearly uh, to become generous people. What is it like to see the joy on children's faces at Christmas time when a, a fire truck with lights and sirens and Santa Claus arrives? Oh my goodness. Like it, my, my, uh, my allergies kind of come to, yeah, you know, eyes get a little watery to see the excitement on these on these kids' faces that, like, Santa is literally coming to their house. <laughs> like, right, you know, how many kids get to meet Santa? I never did. I I think you know I I never did. I so I got well anyway. <laughs> um. So, uh, it's it's incredible to see how excited they are. Um to have santa you know and they get to open a gift with santa you know and to see the parents faces and i mean they they they're choked up they're taken back you know and they're like that's that's what it's about like it's not about the gifts it's a you know they're it's they are never it's about a human connection yeah but they're never gonna forget this this is gonna be a memory that they are gonna have for the rest of their lives a happy memory and not all their memories are going to be happy because they're already having, you know, like they are going to, they have goods and bads, but 
they're already struggling, but this is something like, how cool is it that the firefighters and Santa Absolutely. are coming on Christmas Eve and they're so busy, you know? Right. Well, when you're in the generosity business, if you will, when you're in the giving business of, and I've experienced this, it's easy to get downtrodden when somehow or another your gifts or your generosity perhaps is not appreciated. I've had a few times in, in my life where, very rare, but few times in my life when this parish or, or something that I was involved in, I felt like we went over and beyond and perhaps it wasn't appreciated as much or maybe even it's squandered. You know, you'll hear that person every once in a while that says, oh, they're just going to waste that or they get real negative. But I, I've learned that if I keep what matters forefront, which is that it is about me and the heart that I want to have towards other people and not what I expect them to, how I expect them to act in return, then all those things could go better. And so I, I would encourage you and others to keep doing what you're doing in that regard because uh, even if there is a setback, who cares? Oh, I agree. I agree. Some, I mean, we've experienced that. I've experienced that. There's times where, like, I say I'm fed up and I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore because uh, I try to do good and then somebody's, you know, yelling at me for something or I didn't do enough. I'm yeah. like, <laughs> right. you know, and it and it gets it gets disheartening, but you know what? And then and that's not about you, though. It's about where that person is in their life at that point in time. And, and all we can do is remain compassionate. And I, I just I just take a little time. I take a breather and you know what? And it's just one person and I'm not going to let them stop me from helping other people that are appreciative. And maybe maybe they'll see that it doesn't stop me. And it doesn't stop us from doing what we do and they can try to bring us down and, and, you know, be the Grinch who stole Christmas. But look, the Grinch came around, didn't he? That's right. And he he loved Christmas, you know? And so Audrey, we haven't even touched on what is probably your most important calling of all. And that is being mom to Casey, who's now high school aged. She's a senior. A senior. (laughs) Tell us about her. Um, she's amazing, uh, but a pain in my butt too. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. Like, I feel like I have worked my butt off to do a good job and I do, I do have some mom guilt, you know, I'm sure all moms get that. Um, what parents, do you mean by that? Um, like sometimes I feel like I'm not home a lot, like I should be like, cause I work overtime and I'm juggling so many things um, and, you know, like I feel like I'm taken away from her, but then when I am home and I feel like she doesn't even hang out with me, you know, she's a teenager, right? What teenagers do. Yes. Yes. Um, but she's, she's awesome. I think she is, has a giving heart um, like me. And I think that's from doing, seeing me do all the things and she actually partakes in a lot of the locals events as well. She helps me with that. She's like my little sidekick. That's right. She's my, she's my ride or die. As I tell her. Um, but, um, it was, I mean, it was hard for her though, too. Um, growing up with me, um, being a single parent, like her, her dad lives in New York 
Um, so she only sees him two, maybe three times a year. And, uh, I mean, they FaceTime and stuff like that a lot. Um, and then my mom, my mom basically helped me raise her. Um, and then she moved away and everybody moved away. It's just me and her here in Kentucky now. (laughs) Um, but we made it, we made it. Um, you still have picnics? Um, (laughs) we don't, we don't have picnics anymore because it's hard just to even get her to, to have lunch with me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, these days, what what are your hopes for, for Casey? Um, I just want her to be, um, protected. Like that's my big thing. (laughs) Like I want to protect her as much as I can. Um, I just, I want her to be a good person. Just, you know, make, make good decisions. Like I know she's going to make mistakes. Everybody does. Right. Um, I just want her to be able to learn from them and just, just to be a strong woman. Well, it sounds like she um, has a good example. I hope so. I hope I, I hope I have, uh, set a good example for her. And, um, I just, I see a lot of me in her and she definitely got my attitude. <laughs> She's definitely got my attitude. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, but she plans on going to nursing, so she's following in, in the, in the service. Um, she told me she was not doing military or firefighter. She was not doing that. (laughs) She already told me that, but we, and you were like, thank God. Um, on the military, uh, not the military, probably not. Um, but I would have been fine with the firefighter and the paramedic, but, um, we have been talking about nursing for a long time, and I think that is what she is set on. I hope that is what she does. Um, that's the plan for. So, like on infomercials, you see the the well, the person's voice will always say, "But now wait, there's more." And so now, if if all of that wasn't enough, you <laughs> you put yourself out there about a year or so ago, maybe two, and you ran for election on a position within the International Association of Firefighters on what's called their Human Relations Committee, and you won, right? You won. That's the first time anybody's beaten incumbent. Right? (laughs) Who knew, right? Yeah. So tell me more about that committee and what it does internationally. Correct. So um, Canada and the U.S., uh, for the firefighters in the international, um, the committee is uh, basically we help locals with um, either establishing human relations committees. Um, we also help with policies and procedures um, and any kind of maybe issue they are facing. Um, so we we have these things called technical assists where we will actually come in to a local and um, help them get established or help them through an issue or hopefully mitigate something that may be going on. When there's conflict, maybe Correct. over some, maybe a, a gender issue or a, even a racial issue. Correct. Um, it Actually, everything. Yeah. Everything. Gender. Um, we, we have a lot of um, more recent with the LBGTQ plus community. Um, San Fran probably like they're probably the most like in the forefront of that. Um, th- and they, they actually, um, San Fran has like the most female firefighters, um, out of any department. They have like 250 women. How amazing is that? 
Right. So when I gave those statistics before and said this percentage, <laughs> all of them are in San Most of them are in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> Not true, but um, but close, right? Yes. Um, but they they are. Um, we actually have a woman on the committee. She's in the LBGTQ plus um, community, and um, we actually have um, one of our guys, Chris. He's a transgender like on the committee. So that's like really, um, and I've know I've reached out to you before because it's something I want to learn about, uh, that I don't know a lot, but we do have representatives on the committee as well. And, and so like I represent the, uh, women's categories where I won in the election, but there's also, I, I fall in veterans. I also fall because my dad was Caucasian. I could technically fall in there. Um, Hispanics. Um, so there's, there's, a slew of, of categories. So why do our differences, I mean, this is always the, t- the $64,000 question, but why do we as human beings divide on our differences? I don't know. I don't, um, I, I think fear? it's because, yeah, I think it's fear of the unknown or they just don't want to, they don't know any better. It's ignorance, really. And ignorance is not bliss. Um, so, we need to teach each other and and on our differences, and that's part of the community. The uh, committee is that it's edu- it, to me. I think the most important thing is education. It's because you just don't know or awareness. So yeah, education, awareness, like just learning about people's differences, and it doesn't necessarily because I'm different doesn't make me weak. Um, it doesn't. You know, or take something away from someone else, right? Um, because I'm a certain color or certain race, or you know, if I identify as one way or or another, you know, like it doesn't. They just don't understand. Like it's funny. I started. I don't know if you've seen my signature on my emails. I have not. So I added my pronouns, and probably within. Did you get pushback on that? I didn't get pushed back. I just got asked about questions. It. I just got questions. That's fair. But it's bringing to light. People are asking questions, and they're not, and it's not pushback. It's not antagonistic, they're, right? They're they're interested, um, and I think people are starting to see all these differences, and they are like starting to accept it more. Well, um, what a powerful, what a powerful motivator that really is to a younger person out there who sees that perhaps on your email and says that as I work hard and as I'm qualified to do this kind of work, that I don't have to worry that those barriers are going to get in the way of me being able to do my job. Correct. Like I probably... 10 years ago, I would have never put my pronouns, you know, but uh, again, I have worked to get here and people know, um, who I am and what I do and what I stand for. And I am trying to pave the way for, I'm trying to pave the way for the newer generations that they don't have to put up with the stuff that I did, you know, like, because we are making people aware and we are, um, we're, we're educating our members and our, and people around us and that 
we are building on our differences and our strengths and learning about our cultures and our religions and how we were raised. And because that's even different, you know, just being raised, you know, being raised in a upper middle class and being raised poor is, is huge, you know, huge differences and disparities between the, the two. And they just don't understand. And it, it's just about learning and understanding and being aware. And you don't have to experience what somebody else, you know, you just, you just have to be open-minded and just listen, not just hearing, listening and, and just taking it in, you know, that it's okay that we're different. Like, but in the end we do the same job. We're a team and, and we, we're family, you know, like it's, and again, it's just like any normal family. You may not necessarily like everybody or agree with everybody, but but you still, you know, that we're, we're family. That it can work out its problems too. Right, right. So how does someone from a small but mighty local union, you know, 36 active members on a good day, <laughs> have someone win an election against people or running that represent groups of hundreds of people? I mean, little old Newport? Correct. <laughs> so it was, um, again... It wasn't just me. Um, I had amazing people supporting me. The local supported me. Um, the state supported me. The uh, locals within the state. Um, I went out uh, and traveled and met with a lot of people in different um, districts. And just getting people to know me. I sent mailers out to let them know me and... Um, when it came down to the like election week when we were out at the conference, every morning I got up and I went to breakfast and I sat at a new table. I met new people and, and talked to them and answered any questions that they had about me. Um, and it happened. And I mean, yeah, it happened. Like it's it's doable. Like a lot of uh, and it was funny because afterwards, a lot of people were blown away with they couldn't believe that we were a 36 member local and then we just, we just won this, you know, like, but I would have never been able to do this without the support of my members and the surrounding locals. Like, I mean, uh, shout out Bob hug. He did all of my social media. <laughs> like, like he made literally, um, it was like a, it's so the elected human relations committee was, before I got on the board, it was like a super secret club <laughs> that they didn't want me in. <laughs> so, no. um, so I, you know, like I kind of had to like force my hand in there, but like, I didn't know a lot of the rules and like, it was, it was very like kind of, so when you say force your hand, most of us think kick down the door. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> with, with our friend Audrey. Yeah. Like I, I knocked at first. That's right. Um, but they didn't want to open up. <laughs> but they did. You know, like, I'm obviously, nobody wants to lose a part of their group, right? Sure. You know, but there was actually members um, that were uh, super happy. Like, they, they, they saw the work that I'm willing to put into it, you know, and, like, the lengths that I went in the campaigning, and um, which was harp. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not really into politics. Um, Good. I leave that up to uh, 
the political Jake. people. Yeah, I'll leave that up to him. Not, not so much me. Um, so that was the hard part was like the campaigning part, <laughs> like, you know, but um, I like meeting new people and talking to new people. And so that was um, nerve wracking, but, in, but interesting and fun. And I've met so many amazing people out there in Canada and in the U.S. from all different departments. From, and like a lot of them I still talk to, like, and they reach out to me. Um, I actually had a, a firefighter from California reach out to me about fundraising this week, <laughs> you know, and asking for guidance on what they can do um, to uh, help raise funds in their, in their local. And, and this is a local with probably – uh, 150 members they're they're federal so they're not as large but like they're reaching out to us little old local 45 but you know but we're we're like you said we're small but mighty so our time is starting to come to a close audrey where do you see god at work in your life um definitely in you oh, well. <laughs> um you have been amazing. Honestly, like, we are so lucky to have you and uh, all the things that you do and the things that you bring. And um, so I see at work, um, I see that uh, through you and all the wonderful things. And my life is probably definitely my mama. You know, like, she's like my, my angel on earth. Um, my daughter my family, like I'm, I'm, that's if I, I didn't have anything, at least I have that. Like that is the one thing I would never want taken away from me is my family. You know, like I don't, I, you could take, you could have everything else. I'll give you everything else, but. But not that. Not that. Absolutely. Where do you find some hope in the world? I mean, so much is, seems so desperate and despairing right now and it probably has been for some time but but where do you find hope in the world and the things that i do and that i do through the international and through the local and um through uh encouraging my daughter to you know be a good person and grow up to be a a strong, independent woman. Um, that's where I find all my hope. You know, like Heck just yeah. doing, just being you. Just, I guess, just doing. Like that's what it. I see. I see the the sparkle in people's eyes, and even if it's just for a moment, you know, that's that that's enough faith and hope that I need. We've been talking today with Audrea Zarzak, and I know that you agree with me that have been listening that uh, an incredible part of God's creation. So let's offer this prayer together and then our time will end. Gracious God, you are our creator and sustainer of all living things. Look with kindness and understanding upon those who serve the common good. We give thanks for people like Audrey, watch over her, guide her, bless her, and be with all who are working to be the very best versions of themselves and be present with those who are struggling. Shower upon us all the gifts of your spirit, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the spirit of joy in your presence. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. 
Amen. Amen. Thank you, Audrey. I am so glad you took time to uh, be on St. Florian's today. Thank you so much for having me. You are so very welcome. I love you, friend. Love you, too. You've been listening to St. Florian's with Father Matthew Young, the podcast that tells the stories of those who serve the common good. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and about three or four other places that I can't quite remember the name to right now. Until then, this is Father Matthew Young. May God bless us, one and all. So long, everybody.